Hi there, Dave here. It's great to have you with me for today's episode of the Sports Stories podcast. This is episode number 33, and my special guest today is Chris Ratcliffe, the current Chief Executive Officer of Watcher England. I'm really excited to be speaking with Chris for a number of reasons. He is a senior leader in a governing body, and he has overcome incredible adversity in his life, being born profoundly deaf, and has yet achieved both in performance sport and business. And lastly, he's a real advocate based on his experiences for diversity and inclusion. Chris really epitomizes the principle of sports stories, those of inspiration, education, and transformation. As always, I will be posing a couple of questions along with my reflections following the conversation. So please stay around. Now, just before we get on with the conversation, I want to let you know that I have a number of fantastic guests lined up over the coming weeks from a range of different sports and backgrounds. I am confident you will be intrigued and will enjoy what we have to say. So please consider subscribing today on your preferred podcast provider. And whilst there, or after you've listened, please leave a quick review. As you probably know, subscribing will ensure you don't miss any future episodes and leaving a review does your little bit to help others find the podcast and the other sports stories content. This also includes the newly launched coaching and mentoring service from respected and experienced practitioners who are closely aligned to our purpose and beliefs. So let's get on with the show. And without further ado, let me introduce you to today's guest, CEO of Butcher England, Mr. Chris Radcliffe. Chris, thanks very much for giving your time up today and joining me on the Sports Stories podcast. It's a, a, a real pleasure to have you on, on the show today. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. Obviously, we've not met before in person. I've read a little bit about your story, but uh, um, obviously you're also the first person that I've had on that's that's deaf. Um, and I'm really keen to um, hear a little bit more about your story um, and also sort of highlight some of the good work that you've been doing and have done over your career. As a starter, I obviously like to introduce my guests and give them a chance to say a little bit about who they are. So uh, by way of introducing yourself, can you just tell us a little bit about your introduction to sport and your involvement in it at a younger age? Well, yeah, so I think I was interested in sport at a very, very early age. Um, we lived in Australia at the time and my parents took me along to soccer and uh, before moving to Australia, I also enjoyed going swimming in um, what was called Rad- Radcliffe Baths in Bury, where I would happily swim along um, underwater most of the time, much to my parents' sheer panic while my older sister was struggling a bit. And, um, you know, so their attention was very much focused on her while I was just left my own devices. So I carried on swimming and did some training when I was in Australia and I carried on swimming for quite a while in throughout my teenage years but for those of you who know about swimming it's probably one of the hardest and most isolating sports to do because it's hard work there's a lot of training involved and it's completely isolated in the sense that you're just you playing up and down the lanes of a, a, a pool and actually my personality I was much more interested in social interaction so I enjoyed playing football at school and carried on playing football all the way up to um, my early 20s but then uh, in between swimming, water polo and football I got involved in other sports and eventually started playing rugby at club level and went on to play for the Welsh staff team and uh, you know played quite a lot of 
rugby until I was just before I was 40. I think my final game was in Murrayfield at the um, National Plate Finals in Scotland. So um, I was quite lucky in that respect, you know, ending a career on a high, winning at Murrayfield. So, wow. you know, being very lucky. Well, Chris, and if I take you back right to kind of your first involvement, as you say, in that swimming, why swimming? And what was your involvement of your family in, in, in how you got into swimming and into sport? Hi, it's an interesting question. I mean, looking back, my mum was um, quite a good swimmer at school age and um, she won a couple of races at school level and was a swimming teacher. So I guess she sort of got quite interested in my swimming and she'd see that I was quite good at it. So it's just natural outlet from that point of view. And I think that, you know, what my parents were trying to do is trying to include me as widely as possibly across all areas of society. Um, being the only deaf person in the family and being the only deaf person in my community. So I was very often sport was where I was actually able to feel like I was recognised for being somebody for my ability rather than somebody different because of my deafness. And um, yeah, unfortunately came along with my deafness with, you know, I did find episodes of bullying in various places and I remember very well uh, one time when I was swimming that um, I used to get teased by a lad in particular who I can't remember now who he was, but um, I do remember very well that I swam against him in a race in the club gala and beat him and turned around and just said to him, how did it feel being beaten by a deaf person then? And that was it. <laughs> so, you know, I think sometimes, you know, sport was an outlet for frustration as well as uh, enjoyment as well because you know being deaf sometimes is can be a very isolating and very lonely experience sometimes. And how did you manage that when you were younger though you know that bullying and you know that isolation did you have any strategies or any kind of um, techniques that you use to try and build up that confidence because I guess you know I have no idea what it must be like and it must have been quite challenging I guess or difficult. Um yeah, in my early years, I know my parents had to deal with a lot of my own my frustrations, you know. I would obviously, um, being redhead, I would have a natural um, temper on me. And yeah, we got physically frustrated about, you know, not being included, not being able to understand what was going on around me, or, you know, not saying the right things or what have you, you know. And it was all mainly down to communication and not understanding everything around me. Um, over the years, I was lucky I went to a deaf school at the age of 11, which was a grammar school. And that was probably the first time where actually, you know, I was in par with everybody else, you know, everybody else was deaf. And um, fortunately, we also played a lot of sport at that school. So playing sport with deaf peers was actually quite a liberating experience in many respects. And I think that sort of brought out why I was taped to think, you know, to my other better qualities rather than my frustration um, from that point of view. But I'm also hearing there, Chris, that, you know, you're, you use that by the sounds of it as a real motivation, you know, a driver, that frustration um, to really help you progress and challenge you, that energy in a, a constructive way through sports. Yeah, I think sport was definitely, I think, because um, sport is an area where you can be physically competitive um, you know, it, it was something that came naturally to me and I'm not 
what I would say the most skillful individual when it comes to technique or talent, but I was always, you know, the hardest runner, the hardest worker, you know, I would run as long as I could on the pitch. And um, I think, you know, my competitiveness as well was my strongest attributes. I didn't know when I'd been defeated and I would take that to the end of any match if I could. So definitely that competitive nature. And I think, you know, when you're trying to impair yourself in a healing team of other, no, well, a team where nobody else is deaf, um, you have to be that much better than everybody else. And, you, you know, you have to prove yourself and things like that. So it was really sort of sheer um, bloody mindedness, I think, is the best way of describing it, really. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, I sort of, you know, you have to work hard and you have to work harder than everybody else around you just to prove that you're capable and you deserve the opportunity. And I think that's been reflected in my career as well. So, Chris, how did you communicate and how did you hear? How did you build the strategies up to engage with other people when you couldn't actually hear them? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I was born deaf, profoundly deaf, and um, I wasn't diagnosed uh, properly until I was two and a half years old. And so I hadn't yet developed any language or communication. And my mum, well, both my parents really, but my mum in particular spent a lot of time working on me in terms of, you know, using a speech trainer, making me mimicry, copy sounds from watching the speech trainer with the predometer type thing in front of you. And that competitiveness was if I wanted to match exactly what my mum was doing. Um, and that's the very nature of what I became really, you know, you have to prove that I could do it and things like that. And my mum used to spend a couple of hours every day with me for my early formative years. So I did learn to speak and it was the only option that my parents were given in terms of understanding how they could um, teach me to speak and communicate and learn language because they were being guided by other people. Um, I didn't come across other deaf people until much later in life and then obviously, you know, some of my closest friends are other deaf people who use sign language and I use sign language socially um, when I'm with my deaf friends and I find that uh, uh, quite relaxing uh, from that point of view. So, you know, thinking about what you're saying and hearing. I had a cochlear implant about nine years ago and um, that was a, a bit of a revelation really because I went from not really hearing speech sounds to learning to hear electronically with a cochlear implant and trying to understand what was being said. And initially for the first six months after the cochlear implant operation, it was really hard. I wasn't even sure that I'd done the right thing, but over time, I can now hear speech better, speech sounds, and it certainly helps me in terms of my work and my work environment, because I am the only deaf person um, that's working in my organisation and within the immediate reach of my sector as well. Wow, and and I, I love your your bloody mindedness and your competitiveness and uh, those sort of attributes within you and how how you kind of said I used them in the sport world, but it sounds like you 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 really called on those attributes to drive you to be able to engage and communicate and learn how to listen actually 
you know, and and make your way in, in life, which is just fantastic how you how those sort of parallel journeys have taken place. So con- congratulations on that. And well done. It's just, you know, and I think it's it's just a real credit to to you to, you know, what you've achieved both on the sporting field in sport, but also in life. So l- let's lead us on a little bit, because for me, there is, you know, you, you mentioned the, the sector that you work in. OK, so tell us a little bit more about how you've grown through the sports sector. You know, what roles do you play or have played in the past um, outside of actually the sporting field? Yes, um, you know, I've been very fortunate, you know, in many respects, because, you know, everybody who um, develops their path in their career relies on the support of, you know, their first line manager or, you know, their first experience of being exposed to leadership in the work environment. And, you know, I've had a couple of colleagues who I've worked for who, have believed in me and invested their time in me and that certainly helped you know I think you have to put on you know persona of confidence even though sometimes it's not always easy to do you know you have to sort of go into this big empty room and lots of people there and networking it's not easy um and you have to apply tactics in that and my tactic has always been to try and engage with one or two individuals and have a very almost um, concise conversation and discussion with them where I know I'm in control, I know what is being discussed and I can then eventually open up that conversation as I go along and I think sometimes going into a group meeting or a group discussion is the hardest thing to do um, because it's a bit like a tennis match, you're moving your head from left to right, trying to see what something's being said and then somebody else is responding before you even see them to read what they're saying as well. So often, you know, group conversations can be very, very difficult and you just sort of, you know, structure of meetings are important, you know, people who chair the meetings are vital in that respect, you know, where they sort of try and make sure that either using sign language interpreters in meetings, which I often do, or, you know, they sort of follow the agenda to a T and make sure that only one person speaks at a time. Uh, So all those tactics um, put together to try and make it work for me as much as possible. But it is tiring, I was saying earlier, when we first met, you know, using uh, the current situation, using videos all the time and video calls, you realise how draining and how tiring it is that focus and that concentration on trying to let read on a screen and not three-dimensionally is often a real challenge. And so, Chris, uh, d- when we're talking like this, do you do you lip-read or do you hear what the questions are that are being asked? I do both. So that's why I rely on the video, because if I didn't need the video, I would just call you on the telephone. And obviously, before I had my cochlear implant, I would never have been able to follow this conversation at all. So the combination of lip reading and um, listening is how I manage now. And it's just great to talk about this because I think there are so many people that probably wouldn't understand what it is like to be in your shoes, you know, and, and how we have to engage with somebody that is deaf, you know, and therefore the role that they play. So he- hearing how you actually survive. I guess a question I have for you, though, would be when did you learn those strategies and how did you learn them? Um, I think it's a good question. I think um, you sort of 
your starting point is having the confidence to be able to apply those tactics. And I think that I go back to school days where I was in a deaf school, I was treated as an equal. You know, you build that self-confidence and self-awareness. Um, and that, in a way, has become a lifelong skill. And then when I went to college, university, and worked after that, um, it was very much about, you know, engaging and building on that confidence by um, asking people questions, asking people to um, make make adaptations for you in terms of the communication. You know, the, the classic story I have was when I was at university. Um, there was one woman, who, yeah, young woman, who I um, was standing behind me in the queue, and she tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Are you Chris? I understand your death. Do you need me to help?" And uh, Jane, her name is, and um, she would write all her notes with a carbon paper underneath it and give me a copy of her notes after every lecture. And that in itself was a dream because I was the only deaf student in my year, 110 students doing a course at university and really having to focus and listen with the help of radio ace and mic reading. And to take notes on top of that would be impossible. So um, that's one good thing about being deaf is I never have to take notes in meetings or somebody else has to do it for me. Um, and that, that helps, you know. Um, but yeah, um, but always joke, going back to the Jane who took all my notes over the three years at university, I always joke how come she got a first class degree and I didn't because I used exactly the same notes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's brilliant. And, and what and, and why didn't you get a first class degree given you didn't use all her notes? You used all her notes. <laughs> uh, I, um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think I, I didn't do very well with A levels at all. I was too busy playing sport, really. Um, I played a lot of sport at the time. I picked the county school boy level of football, swimming at county level, and I was just enjoying, you know, all that sport and probably didn't apply. Uh, myself as much at my A-levels as I should have done um, and then tried to make up for it later on when I did my degree um, and I you know, treated my degree course as a job I wasn't the typical student I went into university at the age of 21 so I was a bit late um, and so I just made that conscious decision that I would treat it as a job nine to five give or take and I would get up every morning, work, even my final year at university, you know, I'll be up early working through the whole day and then I'll finish in the evening, be able to go out, socialise, do sport, go to the pub, what have you. And uh, my friends would have not quite finished their coursework and they would start that at pub closing time and then try and work through the night. So it's just different approaches that people take and... I just guess, you know, part of it is you have to knuckle down, you have to do that extra work where you have to do that extra bit of reading or, you know, extra bit of um, recollecting of what has been discussed so that you really understand it. And sometimes you don't always understand things first time round. Yeah. And it takes me time sometimes to digest things and really understand it before I can sort of apply uh, a response to whatever that situation might be. And that's not always easy to do when you're a leader and a CEO of a small organisation where 
content decisions need to be made sometimes. Chris, I'm kind of blown away with your journey, you see, and how you kind of really risen the ups and downs of it. Have you got any um, real concrete examples and maybe even a, you know, have you, do you have a, a motto or a saying that has helped really support you and drive you through the, uh, the difficult times? Yeah, I mean, um, there are two, two phases that sit with me quite often, two very different uh, phases. You can control what you can control. And it, it's hard, I have to remind myself, even now, that I often get frustrated that when things are not quite going my way or the way I'd hope they would go. And you have to remind yourself, what can you control? And what is outside your control? What can you influence? What can you um, avoid? You know, things like that. So um, reminding my colleagues, I often say to them, you know, you can only control what you can control. And that often sits with me quite a lot. The other thing that I learned um, quite early on when I was working at um, Activity Alliance as the Director of Development was this phase that we use in the sector called egos and no-ghosts. And we work in a sector where, you know, you've got a lot of people who've been playing sport competitively themselves or are competitive individuals. And, you know, there is that, you know, challenge sometimes where, People want to be ahead. They want to be, you know, the first one that's done this. And sometimes the sector, and less so now, but when I first arrived, you could sense that the sector was fighting one another to try and get on top of each other. And actually, um, it's come on a long, long way in the last few years. And I'm proud to say that, you know, there's a lot more collaboration now than when I first joined you know, the um, sports sector, again, back in 2010, so over the last 10 years, there's been a real transformation. But, you know, you still have some egos and you still have some people who need their logo on something or another. They're two wonderful sort of sayings, aren't they? Very different. The, the first one for me, though, just taking you back to that one, you mentioned about um, you managing that frustration. And, and if I ask you a question about that, purely because, you know, there's lots of our listeners would be sat here thinking, you know, I'm wanting to do this or I'm wanting to do that or I'm feeling frustrated in certain circumstances. What what strategies did you use? Because I can hear, you know, you've had lots of challenges to overcome and manage those frustrations. And I'm wondering, how did you best navigate those? I don't know, really. I think you're not naturally, you know, plan strategies, but there are probably two things that you should always do if things haven't quite gone your way. One, if you flipped. Nice. And two, it's listen, you know, and take feedback from that. And, you know, even now, you know, I could always do that better. Um, and I know that, you know, I'm very lucky in some respects. You know, I have a couple of really good people around me who will give me feedback, honest feedback, and help me reflect in a safe environment. And I think that's really, really important, you know, you definitely need to um, try and unpick and understand why things may have not gone your way or the way that you'd hope they've gone um, without fighting it initially, but actually taking a step back and looking at it and say, well, if I presented it slightly differently, would that be better? Or 
if I don't do this particular thing, but focus on the other bit of it, will that be something that people would want to take on or agree to? And often, you know, it's about taking feedback and taking that uh, step back and then going back again. And you have to keep chipping away sometimes. Brilliant. And I, and I love the idea of, of reflection and, and feedback and the importance of that. And there's something for me even in that, what you're saying is about being kind of grounded in reality, you know, and how that can sometimes help with ref, uh, with that frustration that sometimes, you know, there is only so much we can do and actually we are doing the best we can. And therefore there's nothing really there to be frustrated about even, you know, so I, I really... Um, Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I still do get frustrated. <laughs> Quite often, and you know, I you know what I'm not very good at doing is I'm not very good at hiding my frustration. Sometimes, you know, and you learn, you know, sometimes that you have to uh, understand that people giving you feedback that doesn't necessarily give you the answers that you want to hear. It's not necessarily personal. It's not necessarily about you. It's about how they've interpreted the information in front of them, and. I'm learning all the time that sometimes, you know, you have to give the right information and people can then make informed decisions. And if you don't give them that, they can't make those decisions that you want them to make. On that point, you say you're learning all the time and, you know, and that's what I kind of love about your story so far is, you know, it's, it's been a constant journey of learning. You're always learning as we all are actually. And I'm just wondering there in terms of, um, managing your frustration and giving that kind of feedback how did you learn about that as a senior leader and when did it kind of really start striking you that sometimes you had to be a lot more conscious about the feedback you give and how you give it so um before i joined Boston england in 2016 i was working for activity alliance and um my boss there um the ceo barry horn and Barry is a great guy. I still keep in touch with him and I like, you know, to see him as a friend and a colleague over the years. And uh, he he did quite early on um, make me reflect by saying you can't always get frustrated and angry about decisions not going your way. And... Um, it was useful feedback at that time and you sort of learn as you go on and one of the challenges when you're a CEO is that you're working very often to a board and I'm very lucky in many respects because I have a very good board but equally you know my board given the breadth and knowledge that they have and the experience that they have will ask me hundreds of different questions about things and I'm not always as prepared as I could be and I think preparation is key and I think what I've learned over time in particular the current situation with COVID-19 and the pandemic that we're all facing you know is that you know that heightened anxiety amongst it all about the situation both financially and operationally is how you make sure that you're well prepared and you've got the answers um, for, and, you know, prepare for whatever questions you think might come across. And I don't get it right every time at all. Um, I'm learning all the time and 
my current chair, Mike, has been very good at providing that honest feedback and you have to listen. And you don't always like hearing what you hear. Um, but yeah, that's me to a T. Wow. Let me flip the the controller controllables kind of motto that you shared. And is there a, uh, a real great example you can think of where in your career, both in the sport or as a, a leader, senior leader, where that phrase or motto of controlling the controllables has really, really been very successful and paid dividends for you? Yeah, I think uh, in the early days when I was at Activity Alliance, um, there was real challenges, you know, within the, um, you know, the time when there was the comprehensive spending review, which were coming for a circle around again, you know, back in 2010-11, when, you know, we were being questioned about what we were doing and, you know, why, why would Sport England want to invest in this particular area of work that we we're doing around engagement with our, um, at the time called community sport partnerships, you know, um, and uh, the real challenge with that was actually, you know, if I look back, Sport England were right, we couldn't really share the impact of what we were doing at the time. We knew what we were doing was good, we were engaging with Cancer Sport Partnerships, we were helping them to understand how they could better engage with disabled people and local organisations of and for disabled people in their local area and provide them uh, information and, uh, you know, bring them into the sport and recreation fold. But we needed to show evidence, so I undertook quite a big piece of work with support of my team around me where we captured that evidence and we simply asked in the end of it all, it was really down to two key questions. Did the county sport partnerships understand things better? And were they changing how they worked as a result of our engagement? And we could prove then that yes to both of those questions and a high prevalence of county sport partnerships were saying, you know, our engagement team at Activity Alliance were able to improve their working understanding of how they could engage and bring sport and recreation to disabled people. And as a result, they felt more confident about what they were doing. And I think that was a real game changer with Sport England because, you know, yeah, Sport England were asking the right questions. And we found that hard at the time, but actually by going back to them with evidence that we were making a difference, we were making an impact. There was even greater support towards you know the work that activity alliance were doing and during that time it was a really tough lean period because you know our very existence at the time was being questioned and by doing that you know you can see even though I've left over four years ago now you know how activity alliance are going from strength to strength. And you it's a lovely example for me. And as you're talking, I'm really playing with the idea of this controller controllables again from, from this, you know, as we're talking both in business here and in the world of sport performance. And, you know, there's certain things in the sporting environment, isn't there, in performance sport as you've played in and been in, which are, are kind of out of your control a bit, you know, but there are certain elements which you can control. And I think it's a lovely uh, tension, actually, between 
you know, performing at our best. And I'm hearing there with the Activity Alliance that you really try to nail down and get a grip of actually what was going on and what people believed and what you could do, you know, which was trying to control what you could, you know. And I just think it's a, it's a lovely lesson for people to, to really think about taking ownership and therefore how that plays out with both being realistic about the environment you're working in and also how we manage our frustrations because there are some things you know we can't control the weather really can we in certain instances for instance definitely not in the uk <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah but it, but it's a powerful um kind of motto isn't it to take with us because you know do you beat yourself up about things which are out of your control yeah absolutely i agree and i think that you know uh thing is though the other thing is to learn quite a lot from leadership you know out there is that everybody at some point in their career um failed or doesn't succeed in what they're trying to do and if you think about some of the famous sports uh stars over the last 20-30 years they talk a lot about not how many games they won or how many trophies they succeeded in, but how many times they lost. Mm. You know, I think Michael Jordan's a classic one for that one, you know, yeah. for every most valuable player, you know, he missed X amount of shots and, you know, he did that many hours and things like that. And there's no question about it, you know, behind any success, whatever you do, there's often a lot of preparation, a lot of hard work, a lot of grounding to be done uh, and whatever option you take and I think the reality is that success is often down to the effort you put in more than anything else and I for one you know for my own sport career which is mirrored to how I try to apply myself in my work life is that I knew I was never the best I was never the quickest I was never the strongest I was never the tallest by a long way um, and so I either had one thing, you know, that was determination, and you just have to put that effort in, you, know, you work that bit harder, you have to prove everybody else that you're that determined that you wouldn't give up, and that's how I got in, um, and how I got to where I did at the time. So Chris, other than determination and hard work, you know, those two key components which you've shared, have really been a theme through your career, both sporting and into the working world. What, what other kind of attributes or behaviours have you really learnt along the way that's really stood you in good stead for the job you now do, other than that sort of hard work and determination? I think it's having self-belief and confidence. Mm. I think that's a starting point. And I said at the beginning, you know, that's what I learned from being at a deaf school, you know, having that confidence in self-belief in myself. I don't think I would have got that in a mainstream school if being the only deaf person in a big environment where I was struggling to communicate and struggling to stand out. So what did that environment and that school give you there to build your self-belief, would you say? Well, you know, you weren't different. Okay. So, yeah, from that point of view, you weren't bullied because you were different. As a deaf person, you know, you were you were there and it was this much smaller school. So there was 200 of us in a school for age from 11 to 18. So 30 pupils per year group. 
which you don't heard of outside of, mm. you know, um, you know, in the mainstream education sector. So it's much smaller numbers, much more one-to-one contact time with the teachers, you know. So it's um, the role models, uh, you know, older people who are succeeding in academic life or sport, um, and you learn from them. You sort of excelled in what you chose to do, and obviously you were... We were a very successful school in many respects, given how small we were in our, on the sports field. We were playing local mainstream schools, uh, football, swimming, and the swimming team at the time, you know, we were one of the strongest swimming teams in the area. I don't think we ever lost my year group of boys. We never lost the race the entire six years that we were together uh, against any other school out there. And... Um, that was a fantastic achievement, you know, because three of us from that year um, achieved international standard in death swimming, um, and that was fantastic. So, it, because you were, you felt you were good, um, because you weren't treated any differently, and you were part of a common group where you could engage, communicate, interact, you grew up in that environment being confident, um, and that's what I believe, and I think I was very fortunate to have that grounding, really. Um, And by having that confidence, it meant that when I left school, I could face the challenges that I was facing in further and higher education and employment, where I was no longer, if you like, protected by that death bubble. Yeah. Amazing. And, And I think there's so many lovely parallels there, isn't there, in terms of how do we build individual self-belief you know and, and actually the importance of building the strong foundations for you were were crucial to allow you to go and take on some of the you know the bigger challenges in the wider world which you know you've clearly really engaged in brilliantly and faced and managed you know and allowed yourself to become vulnerable again kind of stuff out in the wider world to be able to continue to learn but also hold your own space and and position in the world which you know and i'm just thinking there you've used the word you know building confidence and feeling like you were not different you know and, and allowing you to be your person being surrounded by role models that were aspiring and achieving good things you know these are lovely parallels here and it's just great to hear how how you managed to find that place and and do I dare say also that um how you know looking at on the flip side you've used it a couple of times the idea of, of bullying and what that really means to people in their lives and how that can really impact on them and how how awful that can be and how you find you know, luckily found a way of managing out of that. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't think I really saw it as bullying at the time, you know. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until much later on in my adult life you understand why your own physical frustrations. And one of the things I um, used to be known at on the rugby pitch is that I was quite physical on the rugby pitch when I played rugby, uh, not always in a positive light. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I was known for a punch or two if I felt wronged or things like that. Um, although I never got sent off in my career, so that's good to know, you know. And I now when I look back and reflect on that, you know, I... I know that sometimes the physical nature of who I was, you know, I'm physically, I'm quite big, I was quite strong, and I knew that if I didn't know the answer to something or I couldn't find the solution to something, 
I would just physically like do that situation. And that's how it started, you know. I remember being teased by somebody physically beating the metro men. I remember being punched by a group of boys, you know, in in the park because I was deaf and being able to stand up and fight back. And I'm not saying that that was the right thing by any means, you know, I wouldn't advocate that at all. But that's how I dealt with the situation at the time. And I don't think my parents were really fully aware of the challenges I was facing at the time. I think for them, you know, um, they were determined to not treat me differently. Um, and that in itself had its own challenges, yeah. you know, from that yeah. point of view. Yeah. But equally, I think they were doing things for the right reasons. And I was very yeah. fortunate that, you know, I felt very safe with them and I felt very safe with my family. Um, but, you know, there sometimes there was a frustration for me was, you know, they didn't really understand how isolating it was at times. Yeah. And I think this is what I'm just really enjoying hearing, actually, that openness about, you know, what it must be like to be in in your world, actually, and the frustrations. And I'm, you know, I, hearing you tell the stories about the rugby pitch and, you know, in the park and stuff is, is somebody kind of nearly growing up through understanding how to manage that physical frustration, managing their anger, managing all of that around them, their emotions, isn't it? You know, and just... Uh again loving that your reflections back on it you know looking back and in the hindsight saying that's really helped me become the person I am you know the highs and lows but I've learned loads of good stuff along the way about yeah. how to manage myself because I think joking aside we we end up in the corporate world now maybe in a senior leadership where people might try to bully us again in in conversational kind of ways or we're in yeah. a we, we might feel we're in like a playground setting in a meeting sort of thing and knowing how to manage your emotions and your frustrations and your anger in certain situations is yeah. crucial you know and I'm just hearing those lovely connections that you've you've made which I think is so vital to those listening in yeah I mean I think this conversation is really useful for me actually as you're talking now and you're just thinking and reflecting on why I might respond in different situations like I do uh, never really consciously thinking about it before <laughs> you know but I think there's a very far line between you know um, managing frustration and getting frustrated um, because you you over and above everything else you want to succeed and the determination to succeed sometimes outweighs everything else around you uh, it's when you learn particularly now you know in your work environment that actually most people are on your side anyway um, it's okay you know and I think that's a real difference um, when maybe, you know, when you're um, playing sport against another team or you've gone through periods of isolation where you feel you've been picked on, um, that is a very lonely experience. And I think it's hard sometimes to remind yourself that actually people are looking out for you, really. They may not understand what you're going through in detail, but they are there for you when you need them. And it's definitely true of this case in this day and age. Yeah. And I think you bring it lovely to a point, you know, in most, there isn't many sporting organisations or organisations or teams where people want to, where somebody wants to lose and somebody wants to win, or we're not really aiming for the same place. Sometimes we don't know what the same place is that we're aiming for, but actually if we can clarify that, as you say, we're, we're often in it to try and support one another to, 
to a, a common purpose. You know, I think that's quite a, a useful yeah. phrase. And, you know, Chris, taking it on to the, the role that you do now, what do you see as some of the challenges or opportunities for, you know, either botcher or disability sport going forward? I'm glad you brought Botcher up, um, you know, because obviously being CEO of Botcher England is a real privilege and um, it's the most amazing sport. It's fantastic. And when I first joined Botcher, I don't think I really appreciated how great a sport it is, you know. And I think um, one of the um, uh, Sunday Times uh, journalists actually said that Botcher is the greatest Paralympic sport ever. You know, and it's true. I think, you know, it's tactical, it's challenging, you know, people describe it as two-dimensional chess. Um, so it, it can be a really exciting game. And, you know, some people haven't quite got that yet because we don't know what boxer is outside of our bubble yeah. of boxer. And I think that, you know, for me, you know, raising awareness and understanding of boxer as a sport, what it is, but also why it's so important to our players, particularly those who are, you know, on the path, pathway, um, who, you know, for them, you know, butcher with their life, you know. It, without butcher, they they feel that, you know, they'll be isolated, they, they wouldn't be physically active, you know. Over 50% of our um, butcher players can't access other sports whatsoever. So from that point of view, it's an amazing thing. And I think particularly relevant now to the government strategy for sport, you know, we look at individual outcomes around well-being, happiness, mental, social, physical, um, you know, all those attributes. Bosha lends itself to all of those. But what it also does beyond that is it allows people who are inactive to engage and become active over time through that catalyst of botcher. Because what botcher does is you give people a group in a group a room, a couple of balls, they don't have to get off their chair, they can sit on their chair, they start throwing the ball, then they all of a sudden they start to interact, they start to engage. So then they become motivated, they become interested in one another, they engage. And we know from work that we've done with some of our partners that Botcher has been a catalyst for people becoming active for the first time in their lives or, you know, coming back active again after being inactive for a while. So it's, a, it's an amazing um, organisation to work for in that respect. But there's always a fine balancing act to be had because the biggest challenge we have is always going to be the resources because... We're not like Cycling of This World or other NGBs where they've got a large membership base to generate income from membership and trading and business opportunities like that. We always have a very small core base of players that we play with. So it's more important that we um, get the right partnerships on board so that we're working with our partners, equipping our partners with the right information, the right technical skills to deliver Bosch out there and make an impact. And I know that this has worked because within three years, we went from reaching 16,000 people to 52,000 people. And, you know, it, and it's not necessarily um, just about Botcher England, it's about the partnership that we forged and developed. 
you know, scores, for example, are really grown. And the UK school games is a fantastic example where we've got 25,000 people playing boxer in the school game, the levels two and three. You know, we've got um, some great competitors who play through our Boxer England school competition programme. And one or two have now gone on to uh, the world class programme. So it's uh, a fantastic sport. I can clearly see your passion for the sport, um, which is fantastic. And I've got a personal connection to it myself. Um, The word you didn't use, but actually I think encompasses lots of what you've just said, is that it's it's inclusive. You know, people can attach to it, they can have a go, but it it hits um, so many different uh, agendas and, and needs and wants that individuals have. It's also accessible, you know, and that was another word which comes to my mind. Given all of all of that, what would you say would be um, a, a, the real drive or what, what could people who don't know much about botcher, okay, and the sport itself, what could they learn or what could they take away from engaging with it in some ways, you know, finding out a little bit more, having a go? And the reason for my question is, I'm lucky enough to work in both the para side of sport and also, you know, um, the Olympic side or able body side of sport. And what I've begun to notice very strongly is that there are so many valuable learning experiences from working in, in a, uh, a disability sport for, for coaches and developers and people. And I just wonder what, what, what would you say people could really learn if they came and had a go or found out a bit more about the sport? I think the first thing that, people will learn that actually botch is not easy. And, right. you know, it, it, it's more than just throwing a ball into a court and trying to hit a jack. And people automatically see, you know, this notion and it quite often, you know, you see a group of physically disabled individuals throwing a ball into a jack and actually most of them hitting it spot on and actually thinking, oh, it can't be that hard, but actually it's really difficult. And I know from trying to just throw it on the court myself how bad I am. And um, I don't have any of those physical challenges that I face, you know, whether it's cerebral palsy or whether I'm using a ramp and things like that. So I think that what people need to take away from that is that actually it's, it's about how you apply yourself, you know, how do you think about your mindset when you play and also what tactics you use to play the sport. And um, certainly it's a very tactical sport. There's no two ways about it uh, from that point of view. I think, though, for me, above everything else, you know, I think uh, what people can take away from it is actually... It's just like what we've been talking about earlier in this uh, discussion with, uh, you know, it's one of those sports where you have to practice to succeed and be good. And, you know, most of our top level players will be playing nearly every day uh, for a couple of hours. They'll be doing something or another to be prepared, even if they don't meet at a training session with a coach or a club. Um, as frequently as they would like because they've got the challenges of care support, um, you know, personal assistance to get them to the sports activity, transport challenges, you know, finances and things like that. 
And what we have to remember is that most of our top-level players have a hundred of other challenges that they face in their daily lives before they even play in sport, which we take for granted, some of us, from that point of view. Well, going back to your um, word about inclusion, you're right, you know, Boston in itself is very inclusive. Um, and that's a real challenge. I think we were talking about the word inclusion before. And um, inclusion is a really hard word to interpret for me, um, I think. Um, you know, you sort of assume that, you know, Boston is inclusive, but then there's a fine balance between being inclusive for everyone's sake and being inclusive for that audience that you, the sport was originally designed for and striking the balance between the two. I think it can be achieved because I think for me, you know, if we don't invest in those people who are not qualified for the Paralympics and getting them engaged and supportive of Russia, then we won't raise awareness of the sport outside, you know. But every player that we support on the pathway, behind them they need coaches, they need assistants, they need referees, they need champions, they need fundraisers, they need sport tour managers, you know, everybody who wants to support that sport. And, you know, there's some great examples where, you know, for example, New Sport Trust, for example, with um, their young leaders courses that they used to do, uh, the camps, the youth camps, where we've had one or two individuals from those youth camps who've now become fully-fledged members of our Boston community. Some have gone on to become international referees. One has been selected for Tokyo, uh, the Paralympics, that should have gone earlier this year, and hopefully will be well here, be there next year as an international referee. And that's the accumulation of his 10-year journey to date. Incredible stories. And I'm smiling, Chris, because that really epitomizes for me what the sports stories podcast and the sports stories journey is about because you know these are people that are finding their way through the vehicle of sports to both either enjoy themselves or fulfill their potential or learn a new skill in life or be included in what they do you know or meeting people becoming active it doesn't really matter but it, the vehicle for me is actually the sport has really given them a purpose you know and I exactly. and, and and for me also just the parallel of, of, you know, you back in your school being treated as an individual to start off where it built your confidence, you know, and you were treated for the needs and the desires and the uh, whatever you needed to help you become the person you are were addressed there. And I just think it's lovely that we're talking here about actually a sport, which I think really challenges people to think about the individual rather than the sport. You know, and the, the the individual comes first here because of all the different needs and wants. And I just think you you painted such a lovely picture, and that's probably why I I'm, I'm I'm biased towards people working in that environment where I think coaches really can lose sight of the individual. But in a disability environment, we have to see the individual and then coach the person as opposed to the sport. I agree, you're fully. I mean, one of the interesting. Um, things I've learned from working with coaches when I was playing sport myself was that, you know, in the UK, you know, traditionally many coaches were not very good at dealing with the person at all, you know, and they sort of that social skills, if you like, um, but they wanted better, that emotional intelligence to how to engage with the individual, to get to know them and find out what makes them tick before you then start working with them as a coach. And, you know, my rugby career 
really took off because at that time I had a Kiwi coach uh, you know, from New Zealand who came over and didn't see my deafness failure to the team this evening. And as a result, you know, I was straight into the first team, having been on the fringe of the first team for three or four seasons and getting quite frustrated by that, um, to having someone who believed in me because of my abilities and, you know, the challenge of I was facing with communication with the team, playing as part of a pack in a scrum, um, you know, how do we get around that? What do we do collectively? It wasn't just my responsibility, it was everybody's responsibility. And that was just a real fantastic thing to happen. And I know, so over the years, you know, that side of coaching development has definitely been tapped into. And you know that some of our uh, NGBs are doing some fantastic work now about how coaches look at the person and how they develop that person. And we must invest in that because that's vital because what we sometimes lose sight of when we're working in sport because we've been focused on participation or medals or so on is, you know, what does that person become after they finish playing sport? You know, how are they succeeding in everyday life as a result of that positive experience in sport? And we don't really measure that. Uh, it's a hard one to measure, I know. Um, but I would imagine that there are many people who are leaders in the industry who, you know, have some great stories to tell. Um, some will be related to sport. Well, Chris, you, you've certainly shared a good chunk of your story and your direction so far. Just drawing us a little bit to a close here then, can I ask you uh, three or four sort of quick fire questions? Because what I really like to do is just narrow us down and get a few little gems where the listeners can go away and go, wow, I can, I can implement that or I could use that as a little reference point. So I'm going to ask you for a, a quick few answers. In terms of um, any books that you've most recently read or have really influenced your career, could you suggest any that we might point out to our listeners? Yeah, so I've enjoyed reading a number of the sports autobiographies of the years. So, you know, I've, you know, there were things like um, Clive Woodward's book and the recent one of by Eddie Jones I found really fascinating because um, Eddie Jones, you see on the TV, always looks grumpy and angry <laughs> and crazy, but actually I heard him speak at a youth sport trust conference recently, uh, just less than a year ago. And he was a fantastic storyteller. And his book is a fascinating insight, completely different from someone like Claire Woodward, who was looking at all those 1% gains to somebody who was looking for something a bit different, you know, throwing it out there, looking for something different so that everybody else was thinking of. So they're two very different styles, but really interesting. And, you know, you've got Alex Ferguson, who interesting is um, leadership book about you know most of it was about understanding the detail around him you know knowing everybody around him you know knowing what their role was it was equally important whether you're a dinner lady laundry assistant to the first team captain you know you all had a really important role to the success of the organization and he really sold that to me very very well so you know there's no airs and graces in that really, from that point of view. So I've always found a number of sports autobiographies um, interesting to read. Um, 
And then on the other hand, you know, I enjoy Ian Rankin and the Rebus uh, books, um, you know, for that probably sort of the switch off time and then yeah. doing, you know, Scottish detective, you like the whiskey <laughs> and the grim lifestyle. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, and you, you again, you really highlight for me again the, the importance of stories, you know, and how in stories of, of are your kind of mode of taking information in through the autobiographies. But but another interesting point, which, you know, not many people on, on the Sports Stories podcast have come to, is that actually sharing a book that helps them perform at their best by switching off and actually taking them away from the, the, the logical head work that they're having to do is also really important. You know, which leads me probably on to my, my next question in terms of, you know, we work in the industry of trying to help our, ourselves be um, the best we can be both physically and mentally. Obviously, reading's one way which helps you kind of switch off. How else would you prepare yourself, Chris, to be the very best you can be both physically and mentally? Um, I think it's interesting. I don't think I've done it that well over the last six months, personally. And I'm starting to re-engage on that thought process again. And I say that because, you know, like the rest of us, I've found this particular six to eight months really tough on, uh, from that point of view. Um, and hopefully, you know, I'm learning as we go along. For me, you know, there's a fine balance between, you know, trying to apply yourself in your work, be prepared, plan carefully and sort of set time to do certain tasks and thinking about, you know, time to be spent to think about the bigger picture, but also the time you need to get out there and go for a walk, clear your head. Um, recently, you know, I joke in these days, I've got myself a black dog to get me out of my black dog. Um, <laughs> from that point of view, uh, you know, I... I find it a chore sometimes going out, take that dog out for the walk, but I know that dog needs to walk. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think um, other uh, people you've met through this sports um, pod series have said the same thing. You know, you have to get out there, you have to sort of physically do things, you know. I'm obviously busy with a young family, so I don't play as much sport as I'd like to. Um, at the moment, most of my activity is just walking. Um, but just an hour at lunchtime, I'll clear my head. I often think about things and I'll come back. The other thing sometimes, you know, not everybody does this, but, you know, I have a notebook and pen where I put it in certain places in the house at certain times of the day. So first thing in the morning, you know, when I wake up, I come down and I'll read what I've written the day before. And if I've got any immediate thoughts in my head, I write it down, regardless of what it is. It might not always be work-related, but I know I'll forget half an hour later. Uh, so I do that, and sometimes, you know, just sort of pick things up as I go on in the day from those notes that I've written. Mm. Um, it might not make sense to anybody else, but you'll be me out the odd word here and there, and it might be something that triggers my subconscious in the night. Well, I think that's a really great tip to get things sometimes out of your head, isn't it? So you don't lose them or forget them if you realise that that's maybe a pattern that comes in. I think that's a really great bit of advice. 
Chris, let me take you on then. You know, I've been intrigued by your story, you know, and obviously kind of learning to hear again, not long ago, you know, in terms of having the cochlear implant and, you know, the, the stories of going through school and the different jobs you've done in the sport, given all of those ups and downs and those highs and lows, um, what advice in, in a sentence would you give to yourself, uh, a teenage version of yourself? So looking back, what advice might you give to a teenage version of yourself now? That's a really interesting one. I think if I'd give myself advice at the age of 15, 16, is pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in terms of, you know, at the time I didn't really value learning uh, as much as I did much later on. And uh, I think that that probably sort of limited some of my choices initially in terms of university and going on. And I feel sorry for young kids, really, because there's so much pressure being applied on children, young people at such a young age, when not many of us are mature enough to be making those decisions about what could affect us for the rest of our lives, you know. Certainly me, anyway, from that point of view, you know. Um, and I think the other thing that, you know, I would tell myself is that every one of us is different. You know, we're all individuals, even if we are all group of deaf people or whatever, you know, it, we are all very different from one another. And there's no point in trying to sometimes understand every single difference between us. It's about celebrating that every one of us is different and embracing those differences as much as we can, really. Love it. Really like it. Chris, you've mentioned along the, along the way uh, one or two people that have been quite pivotal in your in your life. Could you identify or say who two, you know, you know, maybe name two or three people? And I know appreciate this is not easy. Two or three people that have made a real big impact and be really influential in, in steering or supporting the journey that you've been through. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the different stages of life have been quite fortunate, you know. I mean, my parents were definitely a key influence yeah. throughout my life up until they died recently. Um, but in terms of, you know, at school, there were a couple of key teachers. But the one person that really stood out to me in my formative years at university, you know, in my early 20s, was Celia Blackenbridge, who is my personal tutor at Sheffield. Um, and Celia, for those of us who know who Celia was and what she stood for, was a force to be reckoned with. Um, she was our course leader, she was my personal tutor for three years, and the thing that she did so well with me as a student was she made me take my studies really seriously, but she made sure that everything was done as much as within her powers to make me feel included, to make me feel that I hadn't missed out on anything. And yet she put that responsibility back on me from time to time as well. So, you know, she was great in that respect. And I kept in touch with her um, on and off over the years until she died recently. And uh, she was a, a fantastic woman, a fantastic person to be with at that stage in my life. And then obviously professionally, you know, I've had some great managers over the past, you know, there was a guy 
who many, not many people will know, he, his name is Colin Beach. And he was then, um, you know, when I was working in London Borough Sutton many, many years ago, he saw something in me which moved me away from just disability sport into wider management of um, sport within a local authority. And um, great character, you know, used to tease me about, you know, my views on things and, you know, but never once treated me differently because I was deaf and that was fantastic. And then, you know, working for Barry Horn was a great privilege over seven years, you know. Um, you know, many people know that Barry's done some amazing work at Activity Alliance, uh, where he joined at a time when Activity Alliance was um, not necessarily going places and now it's a real trailblazer in many respects. Wow, some big some big shoes there who have been really influential on, on your journey. Um, if I was then to to flip it, Chris, whose sports story would you really like to hear, given that you've now shared yours and given people a real insight into your journey? Is there anybody whose story you go, wow, they've got an amazing story. I'd love to know a little bit more. Well, it's be interesting, really. I think about different people who've succeeded in sport over the years, you know. Um, there's some curveballs out there. Um one or two people that will think, hey, hang on, where'd that come from? But, you know, the one person that um, in my early years that I was fascinated by was Johnny Westmuller, the actor who was Tarzan, because he was the first man to trim under 60 seconds yeah. for 100 freestyle. And it would be fascinating to know how he prepared all those years ago, you know. The other person that I would love to down and know more about his uh, South, South African swimmer, Taryn Parkin, who won the silver medal in the 200 meter breaststroke in Sydney Olympics. Now, Terence, I know um, not very well, but I've met him a few times, but I've never really had the opportunity to sit down and learn his, about his life, how he succeeded. You know, this is a guy who, you know, born deaf, sign language user has been at the pinnacle of, you know, South African swimming for many, many years and still has a big sway in South Africa. Um, but also, you know, the deaf person, you know, he, he won a silver medal in the Sydney Olympics and that in itself was amazing, you know. But he still kept those ties with the deaf community and, um, you know, a, a really fascinating character. I'd love to know more about how he succeeded you know, but there's loads of other interesting characters, uh, uh, you know, but I'm sure there's a few rugby players I wouldn't mind, you know, learning more about, you know, how they succeeded in different ways and forms, you know. Um, when I started playing rugby, you know, the person I really idolised at the time was uh, uh, Tom Smith, the Scottish uh, prop, who I think, unfortunately, has got ill health now, but... Um, the, he was fascinating because he was only five foot ten. Um, yeah, and he was, you know, at the cornerstone of a British Lions pack, uh, dominating scrums. And, you know, I was a prop and I'm only five foot ten and I was in the same sort of position. Oh, no, not quite as good as Tom, though. <laughs> well, what you do there for me, Chris, is by just sharing those few names is, is again, 
illustrate the importance or or illustrate how how amazing everybody's sports stories are. You know, we've all got a journey through sports. You know, there's always something interesting in everybody's story for me to take away. Yeah. You know, and hearing that, I, I I love the idea that some of the guys who maybe are not the the expected ones, as you said, you know, I, they were a little bit unexpected. But so thank you for sharing those. It's really, it's really great. And um, I'm really comfortable in the sense of actually, there's a lot of people that are going to get a lot from your sports story. Just hearing about the, uh, the determination. I've written some words down here in terms of actually hard work, learning, perseverance that you've really um, used throughout your journey, both you've learned along the way, but actually used the strategies to overcome the highs and the lows of your journey so I can't thank you enough really for sharing it and the last word I would also say is you know thank you for being so open and honest about some of the tough times because you know this is not necessarily an easy conversation for many people to have um, and what I would just like to say is um, thanks for being able to pick up on the questions clearly my lip reading is really great or your listening is really brilliant um, but between us I think we really navigated the story really well so Thank you ever so much for, for being so open and honest and sharing as you have. And Chris, as a, as a close, really, if people would like to find out a little bit more about what either Botcher are doing or more personally about what you're doing and your journey, both in the past and going forward, how might they be able to find out a little bit more or make contact with you? Yeah, um, people can contact me on LinkedIn um, initially. Um, if they're on LinkedIn, uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, if not, they can find my contact details on the uh, Buster England website and contact me via Buster England. But thank you very much for your time too. It's been um, a great opportunity to tell the story um, and hopefully I've interested a few people. <laughs> oh, Chris, I, I know and I'm pretty sure you will have um, interested a lot of people and I just hope they take out the real principles. But for me, that idea of, if nothing else, that actually we're all really different. You know, and we all bring our own unique uh, identities to what we do. And, um, and I think you've made that really clear and, and been a very great advocate for both, you know, for both deaf people, but also for the people working in the disability field of sport and, and business, really. So uh, keep up the good work and, and hopefully we can have part two at some stage where you can come on and tell us a little bit more of stage two of the good work you're doing. But thank you ever so much again for, for being uh, my Pleasure. special guest today. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Chris. So there we have Chris Radcliffe, CEO of Butcher England. What an amazing sports story that was. I don't know about you, but throughout I kept thinking this is amazing that a person who has been profoundly deaf was holding a virtual conversation very clearly and being so open to sharing some of the real challenges he has faced. I was particularly drawn to the awareness Chris showed about his early years and how they both helped and hindered his later life experiences. Once again, I am also struck by how adversity has played a massive part in achieving performance. And my last reflection, which did make me smiling, is when Chris mentioned some of his early strategies and behaviours he deployed, which worked for him at the time, but would not really be acceptable nowadays. I do think there is a lovely message in this for us all, as to reflect on what we carry with us, which now proves to be not helpful. So the questions I would like to put to you, once again, based on what I took from the conversations are as follows. What are you taking for granted in your life and how could you show greater appreciation for what you have? And my second question is about learning and blind spots. How open are you to your blind spots? And what do you need to have in place to unearth them? The potential they offer and the associated learning they give. 
Today I've learned more about Chris is open my eyes to what it may be like not having one of my key centers. And I've also come to further appreciate the sport of botcher and what it can do for people's lives. And I don't know about you, I didn't realize that it had 52,000 people playing the sport in England. So thanks Chris for being such a great guest and making me and hopefully you as the listener think. Now, once again, I hope you take some time to reflect on the questions I've posed. I'd also love to hear any reflections, questions or observations you have taken from today's episode. You can make contact via the website at www.sportstories247.com or on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. I'm always keen to hear from you. In terms of what's next, our next guest has recently undertaken an incredible sporting challenge for charity, raised a huge amount of money and has an incredible backstory of success in his sport. So please subscribe so you don't miss this. It's an amazing insight in the next few days. You really don't want to miss it. I'd also like to make you aware of the coaching and mentoring service we are providing. The vast majority of our guests over the past year have either been a coach in sport or personal and professional development, or have valued the support they have received from a coach or mentor, and have recognised the part they have played in helping them be successful and working towards being the best versions of themselves more often and with great skill. Now, why wouldn't you want to coach if that was the case? Now, to find out more, drop me a line or have a look at the Sports Stories website for more details. So to wrap things up, I just want to thank you for listening. Thanks for Chris for being a great guest, showing us how to get on with things, see positivity when faced with adversity and be a great advocate for continued learning and development. So from me, David Levine, have a great week. And remember, you won't want to miss next week's episode of the Sports Stories podcast out in just a few days time. Thanks and take care.